Hello everyone, this is Maria Lipman and our Porna's Eurasia podcast featuring a series of discussions about Russian Eurasia, about the region's politics, and about other Russian Eurasia-related topics. Like so many other countries these days, Russia is the scene of raging COVID-19 pandemic. The fallout break has turned out to be longer-lasting and much worse than the spring one was. The official data is unreliable and often contradictory, but even according to official reports, this year's mortality is the highest of the past decade. Back in spring, at least half of all COVID-19 cases were registered in Moscow. These days, Moscow accounts for a much smaller fraction of all the COVID-19 cases in Russia. Less than 20% of daily infections are registered in the capital. The pandemic spread to the provinces makes the situation especially alarming. Moscow is Russia's wealthiest urban center. Compared to other regions, it has much higher quality of life, including much better health care. Shortages of doctors, hospital beds, medical equipment, and medications have been reported from across Russia. Although the situation is much graver this time, the quarantine measures are by far not as strict as they were in spring. Back then, the quarantine restrictions were in plain view. In Moscow, there was radically less traffic. Many stores were closed, as well as most services. These days, traffic in Moscow is as heavy as usual. Stores and services are open. Theaters and cinemas continue to operate, if with limited attendance. Just these days, on December 16, Moscow mayor announced that there was no need to impose lockdown in the capital. Even if the government intentionally understates the scope of the pandemic, the daily reported official numbers are still fairly high. But Russians seem to have gotten used to hearing of new thousands of infections and new hundreds of deaths on a daily basis, and do not seem to be especially alarmed. Wearing masks is mandatory everywhere, and recorded announcements remind people about it in the metro, in supermarkets, and elsewhere. But it is still fairly common to see people who pretend wearing a mask, while in fact it only covers their chin. Apparently, the government refrains from more radical quarantine measures in order to soften the economic downfall. The blow at the economy is huge, especially since the economic decline had started several years before the COVID pandemic, and Russia had not recovered from it before the pandemic began. The government has allocated additional subsidies to the regions and has taken measures to support the most needy, families with children, and the newly unemployed. Registered unemployment has never been as high as it is this year. Just very recently, the Kremlin has resorted to drastic non-market measures, such as controlling prices on staple food, such as sugar and oil. In mid-December, the World Bank reported that the government policies have effectively prevented further impoverishment of the Russian population. Poverty level will not deepen in 2020. The people may appreciate the government assistance, but the general mood is still grim and the expectations are low. Hardly surprising and hardly different from other countries badly hit by the COVID. In some countries, public frustrations, fears, and discontent with their government performance have had serious political consequences. The United States is one example. What about Russia? How is the COVID pandemic and the way Putin's government has responded to it are affecting public perceptions? What should we expect when the pandemic is finally over? We will talk about it with my guests, Sarah Wilson-Silke, an associate professor of political science at the University of Colorado, and Ella Puniyak, Russian sociologist based in St. Petersburg. 
My first question is to Sarah. You study social policy in Russia. This is your field as far as I understand. Would you briefly outline just how social policy has evolved in Putin's tenure until 2020? And how have people in Russia perceived this social policy? In general, Putin has promised a lot in the area of social policy, and he's delivered on some of it. In the early 2000s, things really got a lot better than they had been in the 1990s, not entirely because of his social policies, but because the price of oil went up. The government established a stabilization fund. They funded a council on national projects. At the same time, there were big government reorganizations and big promises for overhauling healthcare and education and pensions. And there were initiatives in the early 2000s in social policy that were dramatic proposals. And that included a big pension reform, pension privatization, which was meant to provide a more fiscally stable pension system. But after 2009, a lot of that fell apart. And pension privatization, of course, has mostly been abandoned in Russia. And for the past 10 years, we've seen the quality of state-provided benefits that's been stagnating. Spending in the areas of education and healthcare have stagnated, and the quality of services have stagnated. And we still see a big difference between rural and urban areas, which has been a continuing problem. So Russians' perception of this, especially in rural areas, they're not under the illusion that they're getting great services because they know that the quality of state-provided services has been stagnating. And survey evidence from Levada suggests that Russians care more uh, probably about the general state of the economy than state-provided benefits because what it appears is the case with public perception in Russia is that while in surveys Russians will say the state should provide certain benefits, it appears that a lot of Russians have not come to expect that those benefits will be provided, actually. And so the expectations appear to be quite low in the area of social policy for what will actually be delivered. And there's this pattern that we see continuing very persistently where Putin and United Russia will promise a lot of things, will promise big improvements. They'll deliver on some of it, but they'll fall short on a lot of it. And Russians, many Russians, not all, but many Russians are more or less accepting of that. And it appears that what people focus on instead is the general economy. Yeah, thank you. Um, Ella, you were talking recently at a conference about the way public perceptions, public mindset have changed over more or less the same period from 1990s until 2019. Can you please go over those developments? And um, in that same presentation, uh, you were talking about grassroots modernization that evolved, that developed in Russia during that time. What do you mean by that? What are its causes and how it is related to the government policies during that period? The Russian society experiences a lot of development, I would say. Since the collapse of Soviet Union, we built new institutions of work, like most of Russians now work in more or less capitalist settings, in more or less modern ways. So the whole economy had to be restructured. The whole private sphere got changed, got modernized away from typical Soviet practices. People educated themselves. So these are a lot of things to kind of rethink, restructure and to adapt to. On one hand, Russia's experience all this 
improvements and the further it is from government control spheres, the bigger the differences. We changed our houses, our apartments more than we changed our schools, for example. We changed our working environment way more in private-owned businesses than it changed in government establishments. We have lots of new forms of private or free education, and it is organized in way more modern ways than our schools and formal universities that are mostly state-owned. So it's a lot of change, and all the time society changes quicker than governmental structures does. So it creates more and more tension. And probably this is the reason for the regime to get more and more repressive because this tension creates challenges for government. And every time the government chooses repression as an answer. So we have more and more modernized population, more and more educated, more and more like thinking about what some people would call first world problems. And we have government that cannot catch up with these tendencies. So what you're saying is the government is getting more repressive and more authoritarian and is anxious to expand its control, but is not necessarily succeeding. Do I get you right? Let me give some simple example. Nowadays, everybody washes like every day. In Soviet era, this was not the case. But if your children go to school and have, uh, you know, physical culture with the right English word. Physical education, I guess. Yes, they have to exercise and they cannot wash themselves afterwards if they are in school. We have lots and lots of gyms which are private businesses. And there it's not the case. Our gyms are not different from, for example, American gyms. But the school gym wouldn't have enough bathrooms for kids to make themselves clean again. And then they go to classes and they sit uh, in classes this way and they come home, you know, dirty. And uh, on the surface, it's not politics. But this is the difference that you see in your everyday life all the time. For modern urban Russians, and Russia is an urban country, three out of four Russians live in cities. For urban Russians, the way people get treated in hospitals, in schools, in prisons, of course, in social service establishment is unacceptable. It's way below their current standards of humanity and dignity. So, you know, the government succeeds to answer by repression when it answers to like strictly political actions, but it fails when it faces this, you know, not so expressed politically, but very serious tension with like simple life standards of people. Okay. So, Sarah, you were describing the Russian society and its perception of social policy as as a society that doesn't have too high expectations, that somehow is aware that the government will not deliver as it should. But the situation changed just very recently when COVID pandemic struck. So how has it changed their perception? Or has it? You were writing that COVID came as a serious challenge, apparently, to the social policymakers as well as to the people. 
What exactly do you mean when you say it is a serious challenge to social policy? The most obvious way that COVID is a major challenge for social policy is, of course, the healthcare system and that it strains the healthcare systems, even in countries that have very good, well-developed, well-funded healthcare systems that are very modernized. The COVID pandemic stresses the healthcare system. And so that's very much the case in Russia. They were already struggling with a disparity between rural and urban areas. And this further stresses uh, that ability to provide healthcare across the country in a, a reasonable way. In some ways, Russia was maybe well poised in a sense. Judith Twigg has noted that the model of having lots of hospital beds did provide some advantage and that there was already a system in which there was, in principle, maybe a lot of space, uh, a lot of hospital beds. And Russia has had some success dealing with pandemics in the past, although not ones on the level of COVID. And so in some ways, they were poised to address that maybe better. But as I said, the healthcare system was already strained. And so the COVID pandemic only exacerbates the fact that spending on healthcare and modernization of the healthcare system is stagnated. But there's also likely to be much longer lasting effects because of the larger effects of the pandemic. So things like unemployment, for example, would best be handled by a well-functioning welfare state which Russia has struggled with. And so that might be why the current administration and why Putin is prioritizing at this moment, keeping the economy open over trying to prevent the spread of COVID. Because I, I suspect that they can't provide for the large numbers of unemployed people and the large numbers of benefits that might be required to support a suffering economy and so they've made the decision to focus on the larger economic goal over preventing the spread because the spread, uh, according to the numbers reported by the Moscow Times, which has done, I think, a fantastic job tracking the response to COVID and the effect of it. According to the Moscow Times, the infections are continuing to rise. Uh, the death count is those are the official numbers coming out. And so hopefully Russia has hit the peak of infections. But in any case, there are not strict lockdowns like there were in the spring and even in the early summer, even though the numbers are going up right now. Indeed. So, Ella, let's now talk about how you describe the Russian society as developing on its own, so to say, developing despite the government that is authoritarian and repressive and anxious to keep things under control, to keep people under control. And yet people have been able to accumulate the social capital or what you described as uh, grassroots modernization. What is happening to the social capital in the atmosphere of a pandemic, of a really bad pandemic that struck Russia? Well, definitely in the short run, pandemic destroys social capital. In its very physical form, people do not meet much. People work on distance. People study on distance. People do not party that much nowadays. And of course, political movements are affected too. You cannot go to the streets, you know. At the same time, I think in the long run, we are accumulating uh, means to get more social capital during this pandemics. Now the pandemics creates demand, creates need in uh, technologies and new social institutions, if, you, if I can say so, new social mechanics that help people communicate despite physical distance. 
every family that could afford it bought another smartphone or another computer. People are getting better internet access. Business developed distant uh, ways to provide services and goods. And uh, people learn how to work, educate, and entertain each other on distance. When the pandemic is over, we are not going to lose it. We already have the smartphones. We already have the skills to operate many, you know, messengers and platforms that help us communicate. We've figured out how to exchange money, exchange services, exchange goods. And this is going to stay with us. So when the physical limitations are over, some social capital definitely gets destroyed forever. But I think the accumulation of new social capital is going to be even quicker. And this is going to affect not only business, but also all kinds of social life. Interesting. Sarah, so you were saying that, of course, COVID is a serious challenge and the expectations, I would repeat, you said were not very high. However, and this may be because the expectations are not so high, maybe it should make the challenge to the governments not as insurmountable. However, shortly before the pandemic hit, and actually almost in the midst of the pandemic, the Russian government launched a constitutional reform. And the constitutional amendments have quite a few provisions that deal with social policy. Actually, public attention of observers inside and outside Russia was focused almost totally on the zeroing amendments that potentially allows Putin to run for, like, for life. But you are saying that social policy amendments are also important. And don't they create even higher expectations? This is a very interesting question as to why they included these social provisions and social policy promises in the Constitution, because they could have made these promises without including them in a constitutional amendment. They matter because these social policy promises in the Constitution are a strong but very non-credible promise that the government will provide the benefits that many Russians think the state should provide in principle. So it matters as a signal, it matters as an indication of the government's priorities and values, but it's not credible if we look at the actual promises, which is this interesting but old kind of dilemma that we have in Putin promising big things, signaling that these are our values, this is our ideology, this is what the state should do, delivering on some of those, falling short on a lot of it, and many Russians being more or less okay with that. So if we look at, it's especially Articles 71 and 72 and 75, they have promises for things, including a minimum wage. They say the minimum wage will not be less than a living wage, and they included that as a constitutional amendment. But what's a living wage? Who gets to decide what the living wage is? How would you enforce that if it's not passed, even if it's included in the Constitution? For pensions, in the constitutional amendments, they promise to form a system of pension provision based on the basic principles of equity, justice, and solidarity. That could mean a lot of different things. I have no idea how you would enforce that as a matter of constitutional law. And even the promise to implement an annual indexation of pensions, it's implied that that would be an annual increase in pensions. 
but that's subject to the interpretation of how to index pensions. And we know from the past 30 years of Russian post-communist politics that indexation of pensions has faced huge debates about what the standard is for indexing and how much. And so promising to index pensions every year implies that they're going to increase pension benefits every year, but it actually doesn't mean that. And again, how would you enforce that as a constitutional provision? So I think that they matter and they got more coverage domestically than in the foreign coverage, although you're absolutely right. No one was focused on these provisions, but I think that the government felt it was important to signal uh, what their priorities and values were in keeping with what they've always done. But I can't imagine the Russian public actually believes they're going to get all of these things. But it seems to be very symbolically important that the Russian government promises or acknowledges that the state should provide this, almost as if they're saying this is the goal or the ideal. But the Russian public wants to see the signal, maybe, but does not actually believe that these services will be provided in the end. Yeah, and uh, it looks almost paradoxical that the government has even increased the expectations, even if people actually look at those promises and even constitutionally made promises with a grain of salt. And at the same time, the conditions, the atmosphere has deteriorated because of the pandemic. And as Ellie is telling us, people are getting more mature, more modernized, maybe more independent. At that same conference where I listened to your presentation, Ellie, you were talking about the government having disgraced itself, not just fall short, as Sarah put it, fall short of, of its promises, but disgraced itself. So it is common to hear from analysts that Russian people have a virtually unlimited capacity for adjustment, that they are suspicious of change because change portends destabilization. Do you think this habitual perception might change? And the experience that you were talking about, the experience that is being gained just these days during the pandemic, do you think it might have an effect in this paradoxical situation when the government increases expectations, even if people are not very credulous, and at the same time, people are getting more mature and independent? I would say not the government disgraced itself, but some parts of it. And uh, it happened to be the parts that people are more in touch with. You know, you do not go to court every day. You do not get into prison every day, but your children go to school every day. And you get into subway every day if you use subway at all. And these mundane spheres, they failed like drastically. No one can establish enough control in the subway to make sure that everybody wears masks. The government that had been looked at as uh, able to control, able to repress, if you will, able to make people do whatever it wants, cannot make people do such a simple and easy and cheap thing like wearing a mask. The lack of actual control over the life of the people went so obvious, it's so manifest now. Second, of course, medicine is not their fault. It's stretched thin objectively by the virus. And I think people are getting less happy with the healthcare, but people knew that Russian healthcare is not very good. 
people were not happy with the reforms in this sphere way before the pandemics. But the education, especially schools, that's where government disgraced itself. First, our schools were completely unprepared for distant education. They were unable to adopt, and this is not because our teachers are bad. That's because the schools are over-regulated. They are regulated by so many rules and requirements. They cannot change quickly. Then the parents found out what their children are taught. They're not present in class. They figured out who teaches their children and what the bullshit, old-fashioned, you know, below any reasonable standards things the teachers say and how they treat their children. Average Russian family treats their children way better than average Russian school does. So like on every instance, the school system has shown how old it is, how old fashioned it is, how little it is in touch with, I don't know, everything modern from modern technologies to modern, I don't know, knowledge to, to modern interest of psychology, modern standards of respect to children and so on. This is a very visible failure. So there's also a factor when we talk about public perception. So one feature that is commonly talked about is this unlimited capacity for adjustment. Another feature is uh, deep distrust and cynicism. And I think, Sarah, you also mentioned that this factor of cynicism with respect to the government of social policymakers. Now, given what we've discussed so far, which attitude? So we have this distrust and cynicism on the one hand, and uh, capacity for adjustment to hell with you. We don't trust you anyway. Uh, you never deliver. So do you think this might come up with something, that this w might change public perception after a shock as strong, as dramatic as uh, the COVID pandemic? Sarah, would you please say a few words? You would think that something as big as the COVID pandemic and a failure to address it in the best way would provoke some kind of change in public response. And it's always hard to predict the future, but for now, the strategy of the Russian government appears to still be working. Although the very unsatisfying answer, I think, is that if there is a social crisis or a crisis of government provided services that provokes a big enough backlash to produce actual political change, I don't think we'll know until it actually happens, which is not a satisfying answer, of course, but I think it's the truth. But right now, Russians don't seem overly upset about the way the government is handling the pandemic. So if we look at Levada survey data, back in May, 60% of Russians approved of Putin and his response to the pandemic. And from just October of this year of 2020, Levada asked a question about if you approved of how your regional leaders were responding to the pandemic and 60% were saying yes, which was the same as the numbers in the spring. And so Russians don't seem overly upset with how the government is handling the pandemic, even though from an outside and international perspective, we can tell that the Russian government's response is not ideal. Uh, they should be trying harder to prevent the spread of the disease. But there's a very recent example from just this month of there was a suburb of Moscow and they rolled out the Sputnik V vaccine and they did it without prioritizing giving the vaccine to doctors and nurses. 
when they rolled out the vaccine. This was just, I think, a week ago or so. And that was reported in Medusa. But there's been no huge public outcry about that. The only real pushback we've seen is that there are stories in Moscow about Communist Party members handing out anti-vaccine leaflets in the metro. So the pushback we've seen is actually against the things that they are doing, not they're not doing enough. And, and, and so right now, it does not seem like the response to COVID is going to change public perception. But I think it could, depending on how the general economy performs. So I don't think it's going to provoke a big outlash specifically to the response to the pandemic. But if the economy tanks and or the economy even stagnates enough and Russians don't feel that the government is responding well enough to that, that could indirectly, that larger context of the consequences of the pandemic could potentially provoke more dissatisfaction with the government. Ella, what would you say to that from your, not international, but your perspective of a Russian sociologist based in Russia? This combination of perceptions that we have, this, I'll call it patience, or call it capacity for adjustment, and distrust, and cynicism, and what you have described and what you actually have described for several years now as this grassroots modernization and this Russian society becoming more modernized and independent. In the situation of a uh, shock as bad as a uh, COVID pandemic, what do you expect to come out of it? I understand that it's very hard to predict the future, but still. Well, I agree with Sarah on this point. I do not expect like some massive outcry against government as a result of this pandemic. Economic recession is going on for years now. Economy was stagnating for at least five years, some, some say 10 years, but definitely in post-Crimean period, so five years already. And it was not going to get better even without the pandemic. I think the situation now destroys some deeper structures of balance between people and the government. The image of a government that is good at mobilizing, that is good at controlling, and good at acting quickly in crisis. No one thought that the Russian government is good, I don't know, at providing services or at regulating economy. But it was partially balanced by the feeling that democracies are slow, they, they make slow decisions, and the regimes like ours can act really swiftly when swiftness is needed. But now we see like Putin sitting in bunker and decisions made by local governments and local governments not having resources to actually fund the decisions and the center isn't helping much. I think this kind of slowly undermines the very basis of this long-term ability to adjust, ability to let go and try to adopt on your own. And uh, I, I think people are going to kind of self-organize to compensate for these limitations, to compensate for what government cannot provide. On the other hand, I think our government knows already that these tendencies undermine it. It's not political mobilization that undermines Russian government right now. It's modernization in itself. It's like growth of social capital in itself. And I guess they understand it. So they're going to do something about it. 
Okay, so further self-organization and making up for the government incapacity to deliver and growing social capital, something to look forward to. Thank you, Eller, and uh, thank you, Sarah.